Okay, so let's open up our Bibles to Luke 15. This is interesting because Luke 15 has 32 verses, but we're going to cover the whole chapter in two sermons. So we did verses 1 to 10 last week. We're going to cover the whole final third. Usually we call this the parable of the prodigal son. Um, I'm going to call it the story of the lost two sons. But we're going to cover the whole thing today. Not in super depth, but enough, I think, for you to see what's really going on in this parable of Jesus. So let's go ahead and we'll read through it. Luke 15, verses 11 to 32. And he said, A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I'm dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Just make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fatted calf. Kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you and I've never neg neglected a command of yours. And yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you've always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live, and he was lost and has been found. Father, I pray that you would just add your blessing to your word today that that word would come home to our hearts, instruct us, Lord, edify us, inspire us, move us, Lord, to be the kind of people that would bring glory to your name, that would depend on grace and extol grace. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Everyone that comes into the world comes into the world in a lost and ruined state. Everybody. And we discovered last week that the biblical definition of lostness is not simply something like your car keys that you can't find anymore, but something that is lost biblically is something that's in an irrecoverable state. It's in an unsalvageable condition. The thing that is lost, the sinner that's lost, can't restore himself to a place of safety. He cannot salvage his condition. He can't get it back. It's gone. It's, it's like the wine from that wineskin. The wineskins burst, the wine falls out, it, it spills all over the ground, and it's lost. You can't use it anymore. It's gone. Or it's like the Giants game, the bottom of the ninth, the last batter strikes out, and we say the Giants have lost the game. Well, we don't mean you can't find the game. We mean that it's unsalvageable. It's gone. It's over. You, there's nothing you can do for it anymore. And the sinner is in that kind of a condition. He can't save himself. He can't restore himself to safety. He can't recover himself. He's in a lost condition. And every person brought into the world is brought into the world in that kind of a state. But there are two kinds of lostness. And Jesus is going to introduce us here in Luke 15 to two different sons. And each one of these sons represents a different way for a person to be lost. There's the younger brother kind of lostness and the older brother kind of lostness. Both of them are lost, but they're lost in different ways. You see, the younger brother represents the notorious sinners, the tax collectors, the thieves and the thugs and the murderers and the harlots and the prostitutes, the immoral, the irreligious. The people who have thrown caution to the wind and they don't really care what anybody thinks. They don't even care what God thinks. They're just going to try to get as much pleasure and fun and excitement out of life now as they possibly can. The younger brother. He's lost. I think we'd all agree. That guy's lost. <laughs> but there's also another kind of lostness. It's the older brother lostness. Now the older brother represents who in this story? You guys do remember last week's sermon, don't you? The Pharisees, Oleg was there, he's on it. <laughs> the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious elite, the people who are moral, the people who are trying to keep God's law. You say, well, Brian, why would you say that they're lost? They're religious. They're law keepers. Well, we're going to see as we go through the story that they're just as lost as this younger son. You see, both the younger son and the older son are trying to Use the father to get what they want. The younger son wants freedom in a far country to do whatever he wants with his own inheritance. And he gets it. The older son, he wants things from his father, but he's using a different tactic. He's going to try to be the good son in order to get what he wants. Both of them are trying to control the father to get what they want out of life. They're both lost. And if you go back to verses 1 and 2, you remember the setting, which, which teaches us uh, why Jesus gave this parable to begin with. It says, Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. Now, verse 3 says it was a, 
a singular parable. Although we usually say there's the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the prodigal son. If we're to take scripture at face value, those are three parts of one parable. The first part, Act 1, the parable of the lost sheep. Act 2, the parable of the lost coin. Act 3, the parable of the two lost sons. Because both of them end up being lost, as we're going to see. Now, usually when we get to this last part, and we call it the parable of the prodigal son, even though it's not called that in the Bible. He's never called the prodigal son. That's just a, sort of a name what we've come up for this parable. Usually verses 11 to 24 are the verses that we zero in on, and they're the verses that we really like, and we spend all of our time thinking and talking about the first half of this prodigal son who comes home and the father welcomes him back, and it's a wonderful story, but that's not the whole part of this parable. Verses 25 to 32 are really the climax of the entire chapter. And usually we kind of just discount that part. We, we zoom right over that and we don't really pay much attention. But I want you to see that verses 25 to 32 is what Jesus has been heading toward this entire chapter long. Tell me one, one, one thing here. Who is Jesus addressing in Luke chapter 15? Who's he talking to? He's talking to the Pharisees. He's talking to the scribes and the Pharisees. And in the parable of the uh, two lost sons, they represent the elder brother. So Jesus is trying to get something across to these Pharisees and these scribes. They're grumbling when sinners come to Jesus. And he's trying to get across the idea that God's not grumbling when sinners come home. God is ecstatic. God is rejoicing in heaven. And all of heaven is rejoicing when sinners come home to Christ. And so he's trying to get across to these Pharisees and scribes that they are diametrically opposed to the heart of God. They grumble when sinners come to Jesus. God is rejoicing when sinners come to Jesus. And so they need to get in line with God and God's value system. So all the way through, he's got these Pharisees and these scribes in mind. And so when we come to verses 25 to 32... Instead of glossing over this, we ought to really zero in on this part because this is the part that Jesus has been leading up to the entire chapter and he's trying to make a point. And the point he's making is that this elder brother refuses to come in to the feast to celebrate that the younger son has come home and these Pharisees were doing the exact same thing. They wouldn't rejoice over sinners coming to Jesus. They grumbled about it. And they had this attitude that was very much different from God's attitude. Now, all unsaved people are either younger brothers or older brothers, either irreligious or religious, either immoral or moral. But anyone who has not put their trust in Jesus Christ is either a younger brother or an older brother. They're all lost. They're all unsaved. They're all headed for eternal damnation unless they can become a son through faith in Jesus Christ. And even us as Christians sometimes look like either one of these, a younger brother or an older brother. You know, ask yourself this morning, maybe I'm a Christian, but do I have a tendency to slip into be, to looking a little bit like this younger brother at times? 
wanting to cast off restraints and just do whatever I want to do? Or do I tend to be more like the older brother, tend to try to toe the line because I think I'm going to earn God's favor somehow if I'm just good and righteous? We all tend to look like one or the other. But the beautiful thing in Luke 15 is that God welcomes both of these brothers. The father welcomes both of the brothers back, doesn't he? The younger brother comes home. The father welcomes him with open arms, smothers him with hugs and kisses, kills the fattened calf for him and throws a party. But he also welcomes back the older brother. Notice he, he pleads with him to come into the party and celebrate with them. He wants his brother with the rest of the family. And the brother refuses. He doesn't want to have anything to do with it. So God's heart is open wide, not only to the immoral, irreligious, profligate kinds of sinners, but his arms are open wide to Pharisees and scribes and moralists and religious people who are lost in their sin. His arm is open wide to both, and he's inviting both back. Now this morning, what I'd like to do is compare these two sons the younger brother and the older brother. Let's look at both of them and compare their lives and see how they contrast and how they are like each other. And we're going to look at three parts. First of all, their alienation from their father. And then secondly, the effects of their alienation from their father. And then thirdly, the remedy for their alienation from their father. So first of all, let's look at the fact that both of these brothers were alienated from their father. And we'll look at the younger brother first. Okay, go back with me to verse 11 and 12. Jesus said, A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. Now, to us, this doesn't seem like a big deal. But if we were Jews living in the first century, in a first century Jewish culture, what this younger brother says to his father would ha have left our mouths hanging open. <laughs> we would be in shock that, that a young man would have the gall to address his father that way. Because Jewish culture venerated, uh, lifted up this idea of respect for elders and especially respect for parents. And what this young man is doing is very disrespectful. When did somebody usually get their inheritance? When he passes away. He's not waiting until his dad passes away, is he? He wants it right now. Which is like saying, Dad, I wish you were dead so I could have what you've got. I don't really care about you at all. What I want is your stuff. And I want it right now. And so this was very disrespectful. Um, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. The word wealth literally is the Greek word bios. We get our word biology from it. The study of what? Life. He divided his life between them, literally. In fact, the King James says, so he divided his living between them. It gets to the heart of that, that word, the literal meaning. What do you mean he divided his living between them? Why would this father's land, his real estate, his land holdings, be considered his life? Well, we don't understand that because we're city dwellers. But if we were to go back to an agrarian's culture like they had then, a man's land was really, his, his life and his identity was bound up in his land. 
If he was to give his younger son his share of the estate, he was going to have to sell off a good portion of his land, which is a good portion of his living, his livelihood, his honor, and his stature in the community. He's going to have to sell off. Now, in that culture, the oldest son got twice as much as all of the other siblings got. That was just the way they did things. So since there's two sons, the older son would get two-thirds of the father's estate. The younger son would get one-third. So he's going to have to sell off one-third of his land holdings to have the money to give it to his son so that his son can go off and do whatever he wants with it. And so here is the father. Notice how he responds to the son. It simply says he divided his wealth between them. He did it. You, you think in the story that this father is going to uh, beat up his son black and blue, throw him out of the house, disown his son and say, never come back. I never want to see your face again. I mean, that would be more of a natural response to what the son has told him that he wants. But instead, he just meekly does what the son has asked, sells off his land, gives him his share of the inheritance, and the son takes off. So what he's doing is he's losing his part of his self, his standing in the community, his honor in the community, and he's also bearing the pain of rejection by his own son. So this son is alienated from his father. Now let's look at the elder brother. He also is alienated from his father. See, the younger son wanted his father's stuff, but he didn't want the father. The older son wanted his father's stuff and didn't want the father either. In that, they're very much alike. They don't really care about the father. They care about what the father can give them. And why do I say that? Well, look at verse um, 29. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I've been serving you, and I've never neglected a command of yours, and yet you've never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with who? My friends. He doesn't say, so that I might celebrate with you, Dad, so we can go and enjoy a party together. You see, this elder brother isn't really interested in having fellowship or relationship or friendship with his father at all. He wants to get away from his father, and he wants to celebrate with his friends, off by themselves, having this goat where they can enjoy themselves away from the father. Both the younger son and the older son are estranged from and alienated from their father, even though they handle themselves very, very differently. One very immorally and one very morally. So there we have the, uh, their alienation from their father. Now let's look at the effects of that alienation. How does that alienation play itself out in each of their lives? Well, let's look at the younger brother first. This guy got what he wanted. What does he want? He wants freedom. He wants to be away from dad's house where dad is controlling his life and restricting what he can do. And he wants to have the freedom to do whatever he wants. And so now he's got a, a wad of cash in his pocket and he takes off. And he goes to a far country, as far away as he can get from dear old dad so that he... He can do whatever he wants without dad watching over his shoulders. And when he gets there, initially he has a grand old time, doesn't he? He, what does it say here? 
He squandered his estate with loose living. He spent all his money. Imagine he's spending that money on food and drink, and whenever people around him find out he's got money, he's got some instant friends, and lots of them, <laughs> and so they're attaching themselves to him, and they're enjoying all of his money at the same time. But eventually, that money runs out. And when it does run out, what we find is a quite different situation. Notice in verse 14, when he had spent everything, this severe famine occurs in that country. And the first thing that happens is that he began to be impoverished, meaning he has no money left. He's penniless. There's nothing he can do any longer to provide for himself. His inheritance is gone. And so it says in verse 15, he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country. If you have a King James, it really gets at the, the literal meaning of that word, hired himself out. That's not really literally what it means. It means he attached himself or he joined him, <clears throat> himself to that person. The, the word really means he glued himself to that person. Now, what are we talking about here? It's not simply that he hired himself out, but he became enslaved or in bondage to that individual. He's working now for him, and he's entirely dependent upon him just to survive. Now, think with me for a minute. If he went to a far country, so this is a long ways away, and he ends up feeding pigs, what kind of a guy do you think he's working for? Who are the kinds of people that would raise pigs? Gentiles. Right. Jews don't raise pigs because they can't eat pigs. Why would they want to raise a pig? There's no Pigs are nothing. They're not good for anything but eating, and they can't eat them anyway. <laughs> so they're not going to be pig farmers. My feeling is this is probably a Gentile that he ends up having to slave for and work for. So first of all, he's impoverished, no money left. Secondly, he's attached himself to this Gentile working for him. Now he's enslaved. So what he thought was going to bring him all kinds of freedom ends up enslaving him. And then thirdly, he finds himself degraded. Because to a Jew, there's nothing worse that you could end up doing than feeding hogs. They were looked on as the lowest of all the animals. And here, here's... <laughs> He's feeding the pigs, and the pigs are better off than him. He's wishing that he could eat their food, but he can't, and he's starving to death. So he, he's degraded himself, and finally, he's famished. He says he, he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving him anything to eat. So he's impoverished, he's enslaved, he's degraded, and he is starving to death. He's famished. This grand inheritance that he thought was going to bring him so much pleasure and happiness has dissipated, and now he finds himself the lowest rung on the ladder, absolutely at the bottom, not knowing what to do. That's where his alienation from his father left him. It's kind of like the kid, he turns 18 years old, and he gets a credit card in the mail. And he goes, oh, right, free money. What can I do with this credit card? And so he takes off on a trip to Europe, and he has this grand vacation. He, expen he goes to the most expensive hotels and expensive restaurants and goes drinking at the bars. Finally, he comes home from his uh, 
vacation and he gets this bill in the mail which says you have to start paying off the credit card. So he starts off great until he has to start paying. And that's what happens with this younger brother. Starts off great, but it's all gone now. Now he's got to pay the piper. So that's the effect of his alienation. But now let's look at the elder brother. Let's look at him. What happens is that he's out there working in the field, and he comes in, and off in the distance, he hears the sound of singing and dancing. And so he calls one of the servants over to him and says, Hey, what's going on? What's the singing and dancing all about? The servant says, Oh, haven't you heard? Your younger brother's come home. And your father was so excited to see him that he's killed the fattened calf, and we're going to have a big party. And then notice how he responds in verse 28. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. So what's the effect of this elder brother's alienation from his father? Anger. Anger and resentment. Why do you suppose he was not willing to go in? Yeah, jealousy, and I think he's resentful that his father would treat this brother so well when here he had been the good boy, slaving away for all these many years, that's how he puts it, <laughs> and yet he never got a kid. So he's resentful. He's angry because he thinks he deserves better. He has a right to better treatment than this no good, no account brother that had gone off, devoured his inheritance, comes back and he gets his huge party. So the first effect of his alienation is his anger. And mark it down, whenever you start to feel angry or resentful that somebody else is getting better treatment with God than you are, and you feel like you have a right to better treatment than they, you're the elder brother in the story. You're the Pharisee. You're the scribe. You see, he built this feeling that he deserved better on the fact of his own righteousness, his own self-righteousness. So maybe you're not the younger brother going off into sin, but you're just as lost because you're trying to gain God's favor through merit, through things that you have done. So that's the first effect of alienation. The second one was disrespect. Look at verse 29. But he answered and said to his father, Look. I'm going to stop right there. The meaning is, Look, you. And this is a, another thing that a person, a, a son, in that particular culture would never do. They would never address their father as, Look, you. But that's exactly how this elder brother is addressing his father. It was total disrespect. And that would have left them with their mouths gaping open again to hear someone in that culture address their parents in that disrespectful of a way. It was outrageous. Thirdly, there's blindness. Anger, disrespect, and blindness. Because in verse 29, he says, For so many years I've been serving you and I've never ne neglected a command of yours. Yet you've never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. Now, first of all, for so many years I have been serving you. The word literally is slaving for you. For so many years I've been slaving for you. How does he view his father? His father's a slave master in his mind, and he's been slaving for his father. 
all of these bitter years that he's put in. Secondly, I've never neglected a command of yours. How does he view his father here? He's a command giver. He's a dictator. He's a commander. He, he doesn't see in his father a loving, gentle, caring person. He sees him as a slave master and a command giver. He has a dis, this distorted view of God. It's twisted. It's perverted. It's kind of like, remember that parable of the, the three servants and the talents and the master gave the three servants so much money and he goes off away on a trip and he says, do business with this until I come back. And one of them doesn't do anything but stick it in the ground. And the master says, why'd you do that? Why didn't you put it in the bank? And he says, I knew that you were a hard man and that you reap where you don't sow and you gather where you scattered no seed. In other words, you're a hard man. He had a, di a distorted, twisted and perverted view of God. And the elder brother, the Pharisees and the scribes have this twisted view of God. To them, he's a taskmaster exacting this hard obedience from them. They don't see his love and his care and his goodness. Not only is he blind to who God is, uh, they're also blind to their own sin. Notice he says, I've never ne neglected a command of yours. But even as he's saying that, he's neg neglecting a command of his. <laughs> because the father's pleading with him to come into the party. Now, maybe he's not commanding him, but he's pleading with him to come. But yet, he's neglecting that command. He won't obey the command. He refuses to come in. So, he says, I've never neglected any of your commands at the very moment that he's disobeying the will of his father. So he's blind to his own disobedience. He thinks that he's perfectly righteous, but he's not, because at the very instant, he's disobeying the Father's will. And just to go back to this idea of him being this command giver, notice the word that is used in verse 28. His father came out and began commanding him? No, he was pleading with him. So he had the wrong idea of his father. His father wasn't giving commands. His father was pleading with him. Son, come in with me to the party. We have to celebrate. This brother of yours has come home. So no, he wasn't this autocratic dictator issuing commands. He was a loving father trying to gain the heart of his son. So this man is angry. He's disrespectful. He's blind. And fourthly, he's contemptuous. He, contempt fills his heart. Notice how he refers to his brother. Verse 30. But when this son of yours came, notice how he refers to him. Not this brother of mine. This son of yours. He won't even call him his brother. But the father in verse 32 says, we had to celebrate and rejoice for this brother of yours. The father won't allow him to call him this son of yours. He says, this brother of yours. He throws it back in his face this is your brother. But he says, this son of yours came who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes. Now wait a minute. How does he know that he's devoured his wealth with prostitutes? He hasn't even talked to the brother yet. He's still out in the field. He hasn't even seen him with his eyes. And in fact, in the story, did we read anything about prostitutes? It talks about uh, reckless living. 
loose living. That could imply it, but we're not told that for sure. So it seems like he is believing the worst about his brother. There's something wrong in his heart towards his brother. He's looking down on him contemptuously. There's this disdain and this hatred and this superior spirit looking down on someone who's inferior to him. He feels like he has no right back into the family. He doesn't deserve to come back into the father's good graces. So he judges him. Whenever we have a judgmental and critical and superior spirit to other people, mark it down again, we've got the spirit of this elder brother in our own hearts. Now we may not be running off into sin like the younger brother, but we might be having the same sinful, self-righteous, proud, superior spirit that the elder brother had. And that's just as bad as to run off into sin. Both of them were alienated from the father. So those are the effects of the elder brother. Anger, disrespect, blindness, and contempt. Now let's look at the remedy for their alienation. First of all, the younger brother. He finds himself miserable and desperate, starving to death, without a friend in the world. All his friends are gone. He's attached himself to this Gentile pig farmer, and he can't even eat the pig food. Horrible, horrible condition. So what does he have to do? Well, he's got to repent. The word repent never comes up in this story, but that's exactly what he does. Look at verse 17. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger? See, there's three parts to repentance. You've got to change your mind, change your heart, and change your will. And the first thing we find him doing is changing his mind. That's what the word repentance literally means, to change the mind, metanoia, meta to change, noia the mind, to change the mind. And he does, doesn't he? Doesn't he change his mind here? He thought that this far country was freedom and life and pleasure and fun, and he doesn't think that anymore. He's got a whole different perspective on that far country and living away from his father now. When he came to his senses, it's as though he's been in this deep sleep and he's waking up. It's as though he's been out of his right mind and he's coming back into a place of sanity. He was out of his senses and now he's starting to see things clearly. And do you know that sin really makes a person temporarily insane where they can't see truth accurately? They see it with this warped vision, kind of like the elder son when he's blinded to his sin and he's blinded to who his father really was. Sin does that to people. Makes them out of their right mind, out of their senses. Literally, this means when he came to himself, he was somewhere else. He came back to himself and he saw everything clearly. What am I doing here? <laughs> what am I doing here? I'm starving to death. If I just went back and was a hired man with my father, I'd have plenty of food. As much food as I needed. I'm going back. How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I am dying here with this hunger. So even though he got what he wanted, 
he found out that it's not what he needed and not really what he wanted. And so at first he thought that that far country was where life was and joy was. And now he says, no, home is where life is. Home is where joy is and real freedom is. And so he came to his senses and he starts back home. He has a change of mind. But he also has a change of heart. Look at 18 and 19. I'm going to get up and go to my father. And I'm going to say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. Do you notice the change of heart here? He's humbled himself. Father, I have sinned. There's a confession of sin that he's going to make to his father. He's a broken man. A humbled man. He's got this contrite heart where he's willing to go back to his father and without making any excuses, without justifying himself, he's just going to lay it out and say, Father, I've sinned. I'm not worthy to be treated like your son anymore. I don't expect you to treat me like your son. Just make me like one of your employees over there. The lowest of the low. I'll, I'll take the lowest thing you've got. I just want to come home. So there's this change of heart going on. But thirdly, there's a change of will. Because notice verse 20. So he got up and he came to his father. He actually did something. And you know, repentance is not real unless it actually issues in a change of lifestyle. You can talk to all kinds of people who have these religious feelings or impressions and they say, I'm going to change my life. I'm going to turn my life around. I'm going to start following Jesus. And they never do. That's not repentance. Repentance is a change of mind accompanied by a change of heart that issues in a change of lifestyle. So if you say, yes, I've repented, but you're living exactly the same way you did before that so-called repentance happened, you haven't repented. Repentance, to be real, will affect your life. If you've been headed down a course of sin, say you're living in sexual sin, and you say, well, I've repented, and you're still living in sexual sin, my friend, you haven't repented. If you repent, you'll stop. You'll change the course of your life. This man did something, right? He got up and he came back to his father. He didn't just talk about doing it. He did it. See, he made a decision to leave his father, and now he's going to have to make another decision to come back to his father. And conversion does not take place unless a decision takes place in the mind of the person being converted. A decision has to happen. I don't know about you, I, but I don't expect anybody here is a Christian who's never made a decision to follow Jesus. You see, people, all Christians believe that you must make a decision to become a Christian. The only difference involved is how that decision happened to be made. There are some who say that man has the ability within himself to make that decision to come to God, and there's others who say, no, he's totally depraved. God himself must give him the grace to come back to make that decision. But all of us believe that you must make a decision if you're going to become a Christian. You must decide to follow Jesus Christ. So there's a change of will here. Now let's notice the result. When he repents, changes his mind, changes his heart, changes his will, what happens? The father lavishly grants him this welcome back into the family. First of all, verse 20 says, He came up, came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. 
He's a long way off. So if his father saw him when he's a long way off, what does that tell you? It tells you the father's looking for him. Doesn't it? If they had binoculars back then, he'd have them on. <laughs> scouring the countryside. He's looking for his father. He has a broken heart. And that heart will never be mended until the father returns. And so he's longing for the day that he's going to see that younger son trudging back home. Not only that, but it said the father had compassion for him. In other words, something within him went out to that son. He felt something. It's not just that he was acting a certain way. The father felt something for that long lost son. Compassion. My pain, or your pain in my heart. It's a good definition of compassion. He felt the pain of this son who was so far gone. Maybe off in the distance he could see that he was dressed in rags. Probably was. Maybe his sandals were falling apart. Maybe he's barefoot by this time. Everything in the world that he had is now gone. And he's coming home a broken man. And so he sees him a long ways off. He feels compassion for him. Thirdly, it says he ran. Now don't miss that little detail. Because distinguished fathers, landowners, wealthy men, which this man was, they don't run in Jewish culture. Young boys, young girls, they may run. Even young men may run. But distinguished fathers with grown children, they don't run. But this guy does. <laughs> he gets up and he starts running to his son. He sees him way off in the distance. He feels in his heart this compassion welling up. And he takes it off on a, on a run, a beeline, to, to be with his son. And then fourthly, notice what he does when he finds him. He got up, came to his father, while he's still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion for him, ran and embraced him and kissed him. He hugged him to himself. He kissed him. And in the Greek, the idea is he hugged him and kissed him over and over and over. He couldn't stop. He was so happy to see this long lost son come home. There's affection. There's love going out to him. And then there's the tokens of sonship in verse 22. But the father said to his slaves, quickly bring out the best robe. Not just any robe, the best one. Put it on him. Bring, put a ring on his hand. Now you know what people did with rings in those days? It wasn't just jewelry to ornament your finger. They would take the rings. There were signet rings. They had the, the insignia of the family and they could use this for credit. You'd go down to the store and you'd put that ring in wax and that was your signature that you were pledging to pay for whatever you were taking. He says, put the ring on him. He's squandered everything, but I'm going to trust him again with my wealth, put the ring back on his finger. Notice this guy came back and he, was, he has this little speech prepared, doesn't he? I'm not worthy to be called your son. Just accept me back as a hired man. The father won't even let him get to the end of his speech. He cuts him off in mid-sentence before he gets to the end of it. And he says, nonsense! <laughs> I'm not treating you as a hired man. I'm treating you as my own son. So put the best robe on his back. Take a ring and put it back on his finger. And then thirdly, put the sandals on his feet. Now, Slaves didn't wear sandals. This is one of the tokens of sonship. The robe, 
the ring, the sandals. This is my son who's come home, and I'm going to treat him as a son. And not only that, but he goes on and decides that he's going to give him a party. Verse 23, bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. Jews did not eat meat on a regular basis, uh, usually. They did, they did eat meat, but they, they ate it sparingly. They would have meat at their religious festivals, like Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread, the various religious feasts, because that was a time of celebration, partying, gladness. But on a regular basis, they would have meat sparingly. So for them to go out and kill the fattened calf was saying this is one of the most important events of the year for us as a family. We are going to take the fattened calf and we are just going to throw one of the biggest parties we've ever had. So do you see the heart of the father here for this lost son? And that's the welcome God gives every lost son who's run off into sin but repents and comes back. At the first twinge of move, movement from the sinner, God is off on a run. He's after him and he's going to embrace him and smother him with hugs and kisses and give him every token of sonship and said, Son, the past is gone. I've forgiven it. I've forgotten it. I don't even know what happened in the past. You are my son and you will always be my son. So there we have the remedy for the alienation of the younger brother. But what's the remedy for the alienation of the older brother? Well, can I suggest to you it's exactly the same thing. The older brother needs to repent just as badly as the younger brother needs to repent. The older brother needs to have a change of mind. Now, how does he need to change his mind? He needs to realize that he's really no better than that younger brother who's went off and squandered all of his money, all of the father's money, actually. He's no better. He needs to admit that he is just as alienated from his father as the younger brother was. He needs to admit that he's proud, that he's got this superior spirit and he's looking down with contempt on other people, that he's self-righteous, that he's really messed up and broken just as much as the younger brother is. See, he needs a change of mind about himself. He also needs a change of heart. He needs to come broken and humbled that he only wants his father's stuff and he really doesn't want his father. He wants to go off by himself and have a, a goat and have fun with his friends rather than inviting his father into his life. He needs to repent that he hates this brother and won't go in and celebrate that he's come home. He needs to repent of pride and anger and resentment and self-righteousness and hatred. So he needs a change of mind. He needs a change of heart. He needs a change of will. How so? Well, the father's pleading with him to come into the party, and he won't go. He needs to get up and go into that party with his father and rejoice that the brother's back home. He needs a change of will. He needs to come back. And the Pharisees needed to rejoice that sinners were coming to Jesus rather than grumble about that fact. Now let's draw this whole parable to a conclusion. And I want to just share three thoughts with you, three application thoughts to take away. Number one, this story that Jesus just told reveals the conversion of sinners from man's perspective. It's very different from the first two 
stories. Remember the first two, the story of the lost sheep, then the story of the lost coin. In each one of these stories, the lost thing cannot recover itself. Somebody else has to come looking for it and find it, pick it up, and bring it back, right? The shepherd has to go looking for that sheep, or that sheep's never coming back. It's not true, little Bo Peep lost her sheep and can't tell where to find them, but they'll come home, wagging their tails behind them. That just doesn't happen with sheep. Shepherds have to go get them, or they're going to be lost, and they're going to be killed by predators out there. So, the first two stories reveal conversion from God's perspective. From God's perspective, these lost sinners are lost, they cannot recover themselves. They're unsalvageable. If they're ever to be saved, God himself, as the shepherd or as the woman, is going to have to go seeking them, find them, and bring them back into a state of safety. Sovereign grace. But this third little story is a bit different. Because... The younger son finds himself in this far country, and according to the story, he just sort of wises up, doesn't he? He comes to his senses, he makes a decision, I'm going back home. And so you might think, well, maybe God has to go looking for some sinners, but others just make their own choice to come back to salvation. Right? You might get that impression. There's two different ways that you can become a Christian. In some cases, if you're really bad, God's got to come and actually bring you into his fold, but some people are good enough that they kind of wise up on their own and they make the decision to come back. You might be led to that conclusion except for verse 24, which says, This son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found? Well, who found him? <laughs> Nobody in the story found him. Nobody went looking for him. It seemed like in the story he came home on his own, right? And that's what it looks like from our perspective when we see someone come to Christ. All we see is that person repenting and coming home to God. But God sees something invisible taking place, as found in verse 24. The Holy Spirit of God invisibly is at work in that younger son in the far country, bringing him to his senses, or he never would have come to his senses at all, and bringing him back home. You know, the New Testament tells us that repentance is a gift of God's grace. Acts 11, verse 18. Acts chapter 5. Repentance isn't something that sinners muster up within themselves. It's something that God grants. 2 Timothy 2.26 says that God grants repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. So the Spirit of God is the one who turns sinners. Even though with our eyes we don't see it happening. Because the Spirit's invisible to us, imperceptibly He's working. We notice the effects, like the wind blowing the tree and we see the leaves moving. We notice the effects, but the wind itself is the Spirit of God working on the hearts of lost people, bringing them to faith in Jesus Christ. So truly, all three stories teach the same thing. That if someone is to be found, God's going to have to go looking for them, and God's going to have to find them, and God's going to have to bring them back. Because we were dead, he made us alive, we were lost, and he found us. To God be the glory, right? Great things he has done. 
Secondly, this story reveals the evil of seeking our own profit rather than God himself. Both sons made the same mistake, and we're prone to making the same mistake that they did. They sought what the father had, his stuff. They didn't care about the father. They didn't care about a relationship with dad. They wanted the inheritance. They wanted the goat. Could care less about a relationship with dad. And we make the same mistake. We want the blessings of God. We want what God can give us. We want fun and excitement now. But we don't really want God. So you can make the same mistake either through pursuing a life of sin or pursuing a life of morality. You can pursue sin and exclude God from your life. You can pursue morality and exclude God from your life. You can decide you're going to be a very religious person and just exclude God. A lot of religious people have done that. They're trying to keep rules. They have no relationship with God. And so what I want to encourage you to do is to make the main passion of your life not to pursue rules or laws, not to pursue sin, pursue the person of God and a rich, vibrant, living relationship with the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, This is eternal life, that they may know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. Eternal life is not in rules, not in laws, not in sin. Eternal life is in a living relationship, a knowing of God and of Jesus. And if we don't know God, if we don't know Jesus, we don't have eternal life. We're just religious moralists. We're lost. So that's where Christianity is different from any other religion. It's a true living knowledge of our Creator and our Redeemer. And so seek God. Pursue God. Know God. Love God. Make that the, the essence of your life. Don't make the essence of your life trying to find happiness. Do you know the interesting thing is you try to find happiness and like the younger brother, you'll end up starving off in a far country, impoverished and enslaved and degraded. Or you try to find happiness as an elder brother, you're going to find yourself angry, disrespectful, contemptuous. You find yourself missing out on real life if you pursue happiness in and of itself. But if you pursue God, the byproduct of that is you find joy and you find life and you find happiness. The interesting thing here is that God has not separated His glory from our happiness. If we seek Him and His glory, happiness and joy and life all come with it. But you try to pursue happiness on its own and you forfeit it. And you live, end up with a, a desperate, enslaved, degraded kind of a life. So, I want to challenge you. Make that the main business of your life. Ask yourself this morning, is the main business of my life pursuing a relationship with God? Now, if it is, you're going to be a person of prayer. Right? That's how, how else do you pursue a relationship with God but through prayer? How often do you pray? How much do you pray? Do you have a serious prayer life? Or do you just kind of say a 30-second prayer at meals and that's about all you ever get? Or maybe driving... To, to work, to, to say a five-minute prayer. I want to encourage you to develop your prayer life. Go off by yourself. If you've got a closet, this is the best place to do it. 
Go into a closet, shut the door where you can be by yourself, leave your cell phone somewhere else and just have a Bible, maybe a book of, of songs or hymns, sing, worship, confess your sins, talk to God, open the word and ask him to speak to your heart. Develop a relationship with God. If you're not doing that, we're just playing at Christianity. That's the essence of real Christianity as a vibrant relationship to our Creator. So pursue it. As the deer pants for the water brook, so my heart, my soul pants for thee, O God, the living God. So make that the stirring of your heart. And then number three, this story reveals the error of seeking acceptance with God on the basis of merit. That's what the elder brother was doing. He thought that he should have this standing, these blessings from his father because of how hard he had slaved for him, how well he had kept every commandment. He gritted his teeth. He paid his dues. He felt like he had earned his father's blessings and it was unjust for his father not to give him those blessings. And you know, the Pharisees, who that elder brother represented, totally misunderstood the purpose of God's law. The Pharisees thought God's law was given for us to obey it. As though anybody could. There's only been one person in the history of the, the world that has ever obeyed perfectly the law of God, and it's not you or me. It's Jesus Christ. He's the only one. But the Pharisees were determined that they were going to obey God's law, and they set their life to do that. And they thought that they would earn acceptance with God on the basis of obedience to law-keeping. Romans 10.4 says that Christ is the end of the law for those who believe. He's the end of the law for righteousness. When you come to Christ and believe in Him, that's the end of the law. The law has done its work in your life. It has driven you to Christ. The law was a schoolmaster, a tutor, teaching us to go to Jesus. When we come to the teacher, we don't need the tutor anymore. Do you see? The purpose of the law is not to get you to obey it. The purpose of the law is to show you that you can't, no matter how hard you try, and to show you that you need a Savior. It's to point you to Jesus Christ. It reminds me of the story of the man who had all these kids on his block. And those kids would come to his house and he says, okay, I've got, I've got something for you. The circus is coming to town in a few weeks. If you want to go to the circus, I'll get you in. But you've got to, the way you're going to get into that circus is I'm going to give you tickets. So go home and do something really good and come back and tell me and I'll give you a ticket. And every good thing you do at home, I'll give you another ticket. So that's what happened. These kids ran home and they started doing the dishes for their mom and cleaning up the dog poop in the backyard and doing the laundry. And every time they'd come back and report on it, the guy would, would give them all a ticket. And there's one little boy who is more serious about this than all the rest. Eventually, he noticed that the other kids, they'd kind of slacked off and they weren't earning their tickets anymore. And since he didn't know how many tickets he needed to get into the see the circus, he just kept working and working and working as hard as he could. But he noticed these other kids... All they're doing is playing with that man's son. They're riding bikes with him. They're playing baseball and playing catch and basketball and just kind of goofing off. But he says, that's not for me. 
I'm going to make sure I get enough tickets. So he kept working hard, doing things for his mother. Finally, the day came, and all the kids gathered around that man, and they brought all their tickets, and this little kid's got fistfuls and pocketsfuls full of tickets, and he brings them all out, and he gives them to the man. And these other people, don't, the other kids don't have quite as many tickets. But the man says, now, all of you kids who made friends with my son, you can go on into the circus. And the little kid says, wait a minute, wait a minute, I've got all these tickets. You told me to work to get these tickets, and I'd use them to get into the, the circus. What are you doing? This is no fair. All the other kids got to go in, and he was left out, and he threw those tickets down. And he looks down at him, and he notices something written on the ticket. And what it says is, get to know my son. He's the only way in. He looks at another ticket. Get to know my son. He's the only way in. Every ticket had that written on it, and he never bothered to read the ticket. The other kids earned their ticket. They saw what it said, and they got to know the son, and they were admitted to the circus. But here he had fixated on the ticket, thinking that was what was going to get him entrance, and it wasn't. The son was going to get him entrance into the circus. And the Pharisees made the exact same mistake, thinking that the law was going to give them acceptance with God and heaven and eternal life, and it won't. Because no human being is capable in our fallen condition of obeying it. Now, if we did keep the law perfectly, we could gain admittance. But there's nobody in that fallen condition that can do it. So we need to make sure we don't make the same mistake of thinking that obedience to law is going to gain me merit with God. It never will. Jesus is the ticket. Jesus only is the ticket. And so pursue Him with a holy abandon. Make it your life ambition to know Jesus, to love Jesus, and to walk with Jesus. And Father, I do pray that you would just seal the truths that we've seen from this wonderful, wonderful story to our hearts today. We thank you, Lord, that conversion is a work of your sovereign grace in our life. We thank you, though, that we may never see that inward, invisible working of your Holy Spirit, we know it took place because we repented and we came to Christ. Lord, we also want to make sure that we don't seek our own profit and our own happiness and neglect you in the process like these two sons did. Lord, cause us to veer away from that kind of thinking and to veer towards Jesus and make him our life, make him our all in all. And Lord, help us to never make the mistake of thinking that obedience, goodness, self-righteousness in any way can earn us our acceptance with you. Lord, let, let us focus all of our heart on your Son. Because we know that he who has the Son has the life. And he who does not have the Son does not have the life. Jesus is everything. He's the end of the law for righteousness for those who believe. Increase our love for Him and our devotion for Him and our walking with Him and our communion and fellowship with Him. Make us men and women of prayer. Help us to go deeper in relationship with You, Lord. Stir us up, Lord. May Your Spirit work within us so that that would take place. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.